morning. Uh, this morning we're going... Okay, great, it's on the screens. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Good morning. Uh, it's good to see you all. Uh, my name is Martin. If you don't know me, um, we are going through Titus series today. So we are on Titus chapter 2. Um, I'm excited for this series. So how about we pray before we expand on the Word of God? Let's pray. Father, um, Lord, we do praise you for your Word. Help us to see the goodness, the beauty, the joy that is in your Word. And Father, we acknowledge apart from you, we can do nothing. So please, would you empower us through your Holy Spirit and lead us, give us, from, give us the maximum attention, retention, and transformation as we expand on your word. Let the meditation of our hearts and the words of our mouth be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. My rock, my redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Martin. Eat healthy. Eat healthy, Martin. Remember, your body does not lie. It will react to what you eat. Love you. These are, the mo- these are the words that my mom used to say on the phone call. And he'll give to my dad and say, Remember, Martin, staying healthy is very important, okay? Eat well. So my mom and dad were saying, Martin, you are what you eat. It sounds funny, but there's truth in this statement, right? 
the healthier the diet, the healthier you will get. Our body does not lie. I remember working in the children's hospital, and I realized that one of the main differences between the adults and the children's hospital was this. When you give medication in children's hospital, you have to be really precise to measure, to give exact amount of medication that doctor has prescribed. Well, this shows that we all know that what we eat, what we drink, has a real-life consequences. Yes, likewise, ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. What you're taught will have real what you're taught will make you what you are. So if you eat healthy, you stay healthy and well. Just think about it. Our spiritual life is no different, right? Healthy biblical teaching will lead us to live healthy and wholesome, God-glorifying life. Last week, we talked about how the gospel drives us to live. How the true gospel drives us to be transformed into God-likeness. And how this transformation will make gospel attractive to people around us. Well, we often look for well-being food with a passion for staying healthy. How much more attention should we give to healthy spiritual lifestyle? So I pray that God will grant us maximum attention, not only attention, but retention, transformation today. And if you are taking notes, here are the three points of the sermon. But as for you, the dance of grace, the school of grace. I'm not going to dance, but you'll see the point later on. But as for you, Paul often uses these words when he calls God's people to live a distinct holy life. This will make much more sense when we see Paul, how Paul ended the last chapter. Remember what he said? Addressing the false teachers? He said this, They professed no God, but they deny him by their works. So basically Paul is saying, Titus, young man, you're going to lead a church. I don't want you and your congregation to live the way those false teachers live. Because you're saved by the gospel, live differently. And here's how. Here's how you live differently. Now having this in mind, let us see what Paul is saying to Titus. Paul says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Well, here, sound literally means healthy in Greek, or wholesome. Just imagine a meal that is nutritious, that is healthy, wholesome, made from organic sources, that you know it is going to be good for your bodies, right? So Paul is telling Titus, to teach what agrees with healthy biblical teaching. So to summarize, Paul is commanding Titus to teach Christian ethics that are not disconnected from the true gospel. Paul wants Titus to teach his congregation how to behave as a Christian in the middle of sin-abiding culture. Well, Paul addresses older men, younger men, and he addresses older women and tells older women to teach the younger women. And then he addresses the born servants. Paul talks about older men when he talks about them. It may not be only for elderly men, 
but it would be fair to say he has mature men in mind. Now, isn't it really interesting? The way Paul describes what men should be, it is so different to what Kirchhoff tells us to be. It's, it's just, boom, mind-blowing. First, Paul is sober-mindedness. Well, I like the description that said, sober-mindedness is free from intoxicating influences, not only from drugs or alcohol, but also worldly influences that will compromise their judgment. Second, older men are to be dignified, which means to be worthy of respect. Well, this will require us to give up our youthful foolishness and have the gravity and firmness. Lastly, Paul mentions about self-control. This word self-control appears four times in this chapter. It's pretty important. It has a similar meaning to sober-mindedness. It also means sound in mind, moderate, who are sensible, yes, who is known for good and wise judgment. Just think about it. Someone in your life that you will go for godly advice, who is weighty in his character, self-controlled in action and thinking, and can give a good, sound advice. Now, here is Paul's advice for young men. And what is really interesting is that Paul commands Titus to encourage young men with one specific character, quality, is self-control. It is the same word Greek, it's the same Greek word used in verse 2 when addressing the older men, as I said. Just think about it. Why would Paul highlight the word self-control for young men? Just, just think about it. Well, some of the distinct characteristics of young men is that they're strong. They're full of strength. Well, I know I'm not very strong. I don't look very strong. I'm the exception. <laughs> but they're also full of desires, right? Which can be good, and, but also can be really, really bad. I think Paul has youthful desire in mind. As in another letter, Paul commends Timothy, who was fairly a young pastor. He says to Timothy, Timothy, flee youthful desire, which is strongly related to sexual temptation and desire. I think this is really relatable as we live in a society that worships sex, isn't it? Young men are told that watching porn is part of their normal life. Sex before marriage is a normal thing. Actually, the culture tells us having lots of those relationships is being cool. How sad and how, what a tragedy it is, right? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. So sexual sin is deadly. It dishonors God and destroys relationship and marriage. As I preach this to you, I'm preaching to myself, you know, as I was preparing this. Man, struggle is real. But we should keep on fighting. We should cultivate self-controlled in the light of the gospel. So young men, let's do this together as a church. Titus 2 tells us that self-control can be cultivated. That is why Titus is encouraging young men to be self-controlled. 
The real men are those who keep their desires under control. That's what the Bible says. And do not unleash them however they like it. Biblical men are those who are meek. Being meek is not weak. Meekness is great power under control. Great power to not misuse our desire, but to keep it under control. Not misusing our youthful desire to do whatever we want, but taming it to use it for the glory of God and his kingdom. How about you, brothers, my friends? Are you cultivating in this, this character, these qualities? Sober-mindedness, worthy of respect, self-control. As you're hearing this, do you think these biblical norms are just ridiculous? Just too idealistic? Not something that you desire? And you might be asking, but you know, how? How can we cultivate these qualities? Well, Paul turns to three inner qualities now. Faith, love, and steadfastness. Steadfastness. Which is very similar to Paul's triad, right? Faith, hope, and love. This is what motivates and guides these three inner, outward qualities. Faith, trusting on God, as I said last week, gazing upon the beauty and the truth of Jesus by spending time with him. Second, love, that leads us to say, this life is not about me. It's not about me. Which will lead us to radical sacrifice for our neighbors. Third, endurance, steadfastness. Endurance in the hope of eternal life that tells man they're just a traveler on this world and enable them to persevere in the light of the glorious life that is to come. These inward characteristics are a necessary ingredient for outward transformation. So faith, love, and steadfastness drive sober-mindedness, dignity, and self-control. Brothers, let us be the man that God calls us to be, not what the Word tells us to be. Now, Paul addresses women in the church. It's a woman's time. He addresses all the women who are mature, probably have grown kids if they're married. All the women are to be reverent. This Greek word is used just once in the New Testament. It has the idea of living God's chosen people. As John Stott says, allow their senses of his presence to permeate their whole lives. Paul warns that this kind of life does not look like, first, being a slanderer, and second, being drunk. To my shock, the word slanderer is used 34 times to describe Satan. I was like, whoa, this is pretty serious. And the Greek word is diablo. If you're a young man, if you play the game diablo, this is where the word comes from. The devil, the Satan. It means to accuse people falsely with the intention of bringing people down. Well, I agree that slandering is a poison that destroys the church and unnecessarily divides the church. Now, there are times that things need to be said about someone to solve problems and issues at times. But also, I found this reasoning could be our excuse to slander someone. And I've got to say, I'm guilty of this myself. So here are some practical tips from Pastor John Bloom to help us fight against the slandering. 
And these are the questions you could ask yourself and in your conversation. We can sit in the PowerPoint as well. First, first question, have you shared your concern with this person directly? I'd be willing to go with you to talk to him. Second, just to be clear, is this information I should know? Do you want me to help you pursue reconciliation? Fourth, are you doing everything you possibly can to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander? Lastly, how can I help you guard this person's reputation like a treasure? I think these are the really good, good questions we can ask for ourselves. I'll also share this on Facebook so that you can copy and put it on your mobile phone. And while Paul tells world women to teach and train young women, to love their husband and love their children, and again, to be self-controlled, this is the exact same word that I've explained before. And they are to teach young women to purge purity and kindness in their conduct. Now, when Paul commands women to work at home, he does not mean that women cannot have a job. That's not what he's saying. But this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that taking care of our household is their most important task. We have to understand the historical context as many women were busy bodies and neglected their household duties. So taking care of the household must be the priority. And this transcends cultural context and applies to us today. Lastly, Paul says that women should submit to their own husband. Now listen very carefully. Paul is not saying submission to any man, but to their own husband. Now I want you to imagine a dance, okay? Just imagine about a dance. Now, as, as husband and wife, as they're dancing together, husband's concern is not how to force his wife to move the way he wants to, nor to make himself look like a good dancer by using her. But as a loving, godly Christian man, he leads and dances with his wife, and his concern is drawn out from self-sacrifice, love. So he's thinking about how he can make his wife happy and what kind of step would lead her to look more beautiful. And as the wife can see in her husband's eyes by the way he moves, the by the way, she, the way he leads her, she knows that she's loved. She's known that she's cared for. She knows that she's protected. She knows that the husband is going to provide for her. Now she lovingly willingly submits to herself to her husband's leading. I want to call this the dance of grace. This is our second point of the sermon, the dance of grace. This is the picture of what biblical submission of wife and the love of husband looks like. It works simultaneously, you see? Well, Paul says more in other chapters. In Titus 2, Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5, and Apostle Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you join in this dance of grace, and the people around you will see the truth. The beauty of it, the truth of it, the goodness and joy of it. And wonder about the goodness that we believe in. In this way, the word of God will not be reviled, and our opponent will have nothing evil to say about us as Christians. Well, you may say, how about us who are not married yet? Let us also dance in this stage of grace 
obeying God's word, compel the word with the beauty, with the joy that we experience by the effect of the gospel. This is one of the main purposes that Paul is writing this letter, to behave in such a way that people may adore biblical teaching. Our dance of grace in this life should compel unbelievers to come to Christ. This is also the reason why Paul commands the born servants, the slaves, to be submissive to his master, pleasing them and obeying them and not stealing from them. The Bible never condones slavery, but it also shows that submitting to earthly authority is the testimony that we are submitting to the authority of God's word. So let us be faithful in our workplace, honoring our employers, serving them, and working with all our might. Yes, let us dance in the rhythm of grace that is tuned by the word of God. Let your joy shine through in your household and your workplace. Why? As Paul says in verse 10, that those people around you may admire our Savior and the gospel that we believe in. Think about it. You know how the moths are attracted to bright light? Yeah? Let us be the bright light. Let us be the bright light. Well, elders and leaders of our church, as Paul commands Titus, let us be the example of this lifestyle, teaching people with all diligence and faithfulness. Now, how about you all? Are you living this kind of life? You know, as I was preparing the sermon, I thought, this sounds really reasonable. I was so pumped to obey God, but I still failed. Because when I learned about preaching, one of the main things that I have to do as a preacher is to apply in my life first what I've learned. But I still struggled. I failed many times. I failed to love my God with all my heart, with all my strength. I failed to love my neighbors as myself. I was selfish. I felt like I'm so far away from being a biblical man. I want to be full of self-control, dignity, purity, and being sober-minded. But I failed. As a Christian, and also who has the aspiration, I feel like a failure many times. And this kind of guilt almost kills me at times. Especially when I reflect back on the level of my sanctification. I'm just discouraged. Have you failed this way? You try to live a godly life, try to live a faithful life to your, heart, to your family, but your kids would not listen to your heart. You try to live a life of purity, but you give in temptation. You watch porn. You feel so dirty and worthless. You saw things that you should not have. You, say, you said things that you should not have. You thought about things that you should not have. And Satan condemns you. The reason why we should and can be transformed. He says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce godliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Yes, we do not labor to transform ourselves to those right conducts and pursue those qualities to gain salvation, but because we are already saved by God through what Jesus has done on the cross. This is game-changing. We don't do good things to somehow say to you, God, look at me, love me more. No, we do this because we are loved, we are accepted, we are justified in Christ. 
Don't you think this will give you a great motivation that you are so loved? As I said, God literally, say, literally says in his word, you are the apple of my eye. You're loved. In Titus, Paul uses the word appearing in describing the, describing the coming of Christ. In verse 11, this appearing is telling us about Jesus' first coming. That Jesus lived a perfect life as truly man, truly God, died on the cross for sins, and rose again, thus bringing salvation. Now think about it very carefully. The grace of God that saves us now trains, trains and transforms us to give up ungodliness and pursue godliness. British author Kenan Hay Aiken has described this as grace not only saves, but undertakes our training. And the title of this book is called The School of Grace. Yes, welcome to the School of Grace. Welcome. And the fee for the school? It is free. Well, if you're in Christ, you're already enrolled in your school. And the name of the teacher is Grace. Well, Paul personifies the grace here. The true gospel not only saves, but transforms you. Now, as you can see, there is a second appearing that Paul mentions this time. Paul is referring to the second coming of Christ. Our hope of eternal life with God, and Paul clearly affirms the deity of Christ. Paul is saying that Jesus is our great God and Savior. Yes, our Savior Jesus is truly man and truly God. Now, as you can see, the hope of eternal life and the second coming of Christ drives us to be transformed into godliness. Paul is telling us in verse 14 about the gospel-driven transformation by saying Jesus not only gave himself to forgive and cleanse us, but to transform us and to make us passionate about doing good works. So I love how Canon Hay Atkins said, the two coming of Christ is like the window in the school of grace. So now just imagine yourself that you're in a classroom. Okay? Now, from the western window, the light of the cross comes in. From the eastern window, you can see the light of the sunrise, the light of glorious hope of eternal life. So as a Christian, sometimes we look to the western window to see the light of the cross. Sometimes we see the light of hope of eternal life on the eastern window in our suffering. When Satan tends us to despair, and without our salvation, we do this. It will drive you to be transformed and lead you to give up ungodliness and worldly passions and lead you to live self-controlled and godly life with joy and gladness. You see, we pursue godliness, godlikeness, not to be forgiven, but because we are forgiven and have been made right with God. Well, there are some of you who want to experience the gospel of grace, hope, and joy. And yet, you're thinking, well, Martin, that sounds pretty good, but I've gone too far. Yeah, I'm too unworthy to come to Christ. You don't know what I've done in my past. You don't know how broken I am, how simple I am. Jesus is saying, come. Jesus is offering himself to you today. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Well, you may say, but I'm a great sinner. Jesus says, I'll never cast out. But you may say, but, but, but I'm an old sinner. 
She just says, I'll never cast out. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner. Jesus says, I'll never cast out. But I'm a backsliding sinner. Jesus says, I'll never cast out. But I've served Satan all my days. Jesus says, I'll never cast out. But I've sinned against mercy. Jesus says, I'll never cast out. But, man, I have no good thing to bring with me. Jesus says, I'll never cast out. John Bunyan wrote this book, in his book, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ, the Puritan, to show you the heart of Christ for sinners. So come, all your objections have been answered. There's no excuse anymore, just come. Turn from your sins, put your trust in Jesus Christ, who died for sins and rose again. Join in the dance of grace, the school of grace. It is free. Let the true gospel transform you. Yes, savor Christ by reflecting on the light of the western window that shows the cross of Jesus Christ where your sins are paid for in full. When suffering is deep and when you feel like giving up, enjoy the eastern light that shows the glorious hope of eternal life with Jesus. Hold fast to this gospel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Oh, Lord, we do praise you for your glorious gospel. Oh, Lord, even last week, even today, even yesterday, we have given you enough reason for you to forsake us and abandon us. Oh, Lord, well, praise you, praise your son, Jesus Christ, for what he has done. We can say, yet, yet, I can say I'm forgiven, I'm accepted, I'm justified, by your love, through the person and the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, when we despair, when we look at ourselves and think, I'm so worthless, Lord, help us to see and gaze upon the beauty, the truth and goodness that is in Jesus Christ. And by doing that, let us live a life of, uh, let us live a godly life so that may, people may see um, the goodness of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.